the individual investor show. You bought it all, don't you? You hear one thing, they all need money. Now let's see if they're brave enough to earn it. Hello, and welcome to the Individual Investor Show. My name is Jenna Brashear, your host for this evening. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you all had a wonderful week. So we've got some big headlines rocking the markets this week. Tensions at the Ukrainian-Russian border, skyrocketing oil prices, severe storms across the nation, Canadian protests, and of course, COVID lingering in the background. With big stories around every corner, it's crucial to stay up to date with the latest news, especially when it comes to possible market validity. And of course, the subject on top of everyone's minds is how to navigate risk. Tonight's event is the Individual Investor Show, Improve Your Allocation by Gauging Risk and Ranking Asset Returns. And for this week, we're focusing on how to become risk adverse through recognizing your risk tolerance, learning how to use the AAII asset class heat map, as well as understanding risk-adjusted returns to ensure you're being adequately compensated for the amount of risk you take on when investing in certain securities. We sit down with Charles Rotblood to discuss the AAII asset class heat map, which helps investors see how various investments in each industry are performing across a 10-year time span. On a similar topic, we chat with Matt Bechkowski on why investors should be cognizant of risk-adjusted returns, as well as be able to understand and calculate the Sharpe ratio. You won't want to miss out on these two thought-provoking discussions covering everything you need to know about asset class heat maps and risk-adjusted returns. But before we jump in, I do want to preface tonight's presentation by reminding our viewers that AAII is a nonprofit educational group and is not a financial advisor, and thus is not able to give personal advice. Every investor is different. That's why our goal with each broadcast and article is to educate you on how to make better financial decisions. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our presentation. Hello, Charles. Thanks so much for making time to chat with me today. My pleasure, Jenna. I wanted to ask you just a few questions about your newest article in the February AAII Journal, which was the asset class group performance, uh, large caps lead in 2021, as well as covering a few of other things about the asset class heat map uh, in a little bit more detail. Uh, so the first uh, question I have for you is just uh, going over some basics. What is an asset class in relation to diversification? Sure, so an asset class is basically a, a big group of similar types of assets. So. Um, equities, fixed income, which is bonds. You could have real estate, you could have commodities, which includes gold, oil. Um, and so there asset, there's certain types of assets with unique characteristics. So with, for instance, for stocks, they represent ownership in a business. Bonds, uh, they're debentures. They're debt issued by a company that pays interest. Uh, commodities, uh, generally something that comes out of the earth is a good way to think about whether it's gold, whether it's, uh, oil, or you're talking perhaps uh, corn or other agricultural type products. So um, arguably you could say Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are their own unique type of asset class. Uh, and the reason we use those in portfolios or combine them is that each has different risk and return characteristics. So when one asset class might be out of favor, another might be, um, for instance, uh, as we're talking now, there's a lot of concern about what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, if investors are skittish, they might go for the safety of bonds, particularly high quality bonds. Um, obviously, that's complicated right now by the inflation and interest rate environment. Uh, but you can see where this is trade-off. And we know over time, because different asset classes have different returns and they tend to be in favor at different times, 
if you combine them into a portfolio, you reduce the overall volatility of your portfolio. Makes sense, makes sense. And so at AAII, we have allocation models to help investors you know, know how to diversify their portfolios. And um, I just wanna get some background on those uh, and how those, how we, uh, what kind of data went into those when we created them in the first place. Sure, so those models predate my time at AAII. Uh, but my understanding is they're originally based on, we surveyed uh, professionals throughout the industry, asking them uh, about allocation uh, suggestions for individual investors. And uh, that's where the basis of it comes from. It actually did come from us reaching out uh, and getting some outside opinions as well as our own research. Uh, there's three models. Uh, they all vary in a level of growth and portfolio volatility. So our aggressive model portfolio aggressive model allocation uh, is about 90% stocks and it's designed to maximize growth. Um, it's designed for an investor who can withstand short-term swings in the portfolio value. Um, and their goal is to maximize wealth. Um, at the other end of the spectrum is our conservative asset allocation model. Um, and as the word says, as the description implies, it's for someone who wants less volatility. It's 40% stocks, 60% bonds. And the idea is this investor is less able to take swings in their volatility, take volatility swings in the value of the portfolio. Um, and so they need something that's going to be more focused on capital preservation. Uh, hence, it has a big allocation to uh, intermediate term bonds and a sizable allocation to short term bonds because it's trying to provide more, more income and less swings in portfolio volatility. Uh, the middle, your moderate allocation, strikes of both, of, of growth and some wealth preservation. It's 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And in terms of portfolio allocation, uh, the 60-40 mix, 60% equities, 40% bonds, is a well-established allocation strategy, uh, kind of a middle-of-the-road allocation strategy. Over the long term, it will provide portfolio growth um, not as much as the aggressive allocation model, uh, but it will do so with less volatility as well. For, so for someone who needs long-term growth, but perhaps needs to dampen down the level of portfolio volatility so they can stick with that allocation, uh, a 60-40 type mixture can work well. Um, I do want to point out our 60-40 mixture is a bit different than the traditional 60-40 allocation. Uh, the traditional 60-40 is 60% large cap stocks, 40% bonds, ours actually uses a mixture of stocks, uh, international, small cap, emerging, uh, and we also diversify a little bit on the bond side. So a little bit mi different mixture uh, than what you would normally see in a very traditional 60-40 allocation model. And when it comes to diversification, um, you know, we talk about how to diversify your pro portfolio with different um, you know, assets, and we're talking about the allocation models. How does diversification actually reduce risk? So the whole idea is that you're having different asset classes with different returns, and you're hoping that over time, some of your asset classes will be in favor while others are out. So it's really a balancing type act. For instance, we know uh, if there's a bear market in stocks, bonds tend to do well. Uh, if there's an inflationary environment, commodities tend to do well. So you're, what you're trying to do with the diversification is you're reducing your portfolio volatility by having asset classes with different return characteristics. Um, it's also a hedge against your own behavior uh, because if you, if you diversify across different asset classes and even within asset classes, 
uh, if you diversify across different asset class categories, say large cap stocks, small cap stocks, emerging market stocks, you increase the odds of being allocated to the right asset class or the right asset class category at the right time. So it provides diversification in, in both manners. So when we look at um, the asset class map, the heat map um, as a whole, as an investor, how can they uh, can investors use uh, the, the heat map uh, to better you know, make better investment decisions, as well as how is that or data organized? Um, so how can they read it? Sure. So the way it's organized is every year we go from best performing to what to worst performing. So every year the asset class that are asset class categories is listed on the left hand most side of the chart. That's your best performing asset class of the ones we measured. When we look at seven different asset classes uh, and asset class categories, on the very right hand side is your worst performer. So left to right, it's best to worst performing. Uh, and one of the things, and we color coded each asset class category so you can actually see how it's positioned in terms of relative performance changes year by year. Uh, and we're not the only uh, organization that puts these out, but one of the nice things is that when you look at it, you can see that over time, the best performing asset class category changes each year. And so it's a big reminder that if you're really counting on oh, this asset class category has done really well. It's a good reminder that, well, it may not necessarily do well the next year. So it can't tell you what's going to happen next year, what's going to happen the year afterwards, but it serves as a good reminder of why you want to diversify instead of concentrating solely on one asset class category. Now, over shorter periods of time, you might see some momentum popping up where perhaps, you know, large cap stocks, are doing really well, or perhaps small cap stocks are doing really well, or perhaps something's been out of favor for a little while. So you can see some momentum going on. Uh, but I think the big thing is to realize that just because something's doing really well over the last 12 months, doesn't mean it's going to continue doing really well or continue being the best asset class performer, because you do have that, that change in terms of what is doing well. That makes sense, and we've seen that. Um, so, I mean, last year the you know large cap stocks, um, you know, delivered a twenty eight point seven percent gain. Um, do we know why this was? And um, you know, our allocation models, um, you know, they some of them are you know uh, highly allocated to large caps in general. So, just wanted to get a little bit more background on, uh, yeah, why this happened specifically in two thousand twenty one. Sure, and a simple word, uh, tech. We saw the Nasdaq itself do really well, and so. It was really these tech-heavy stocks that had a very good year last year. Um, certainly, you could also look at perhaps you know a large-cap pharma that did well. Um, but by and large, it was a market that was being driven a lot by tech, particularly, um, and really just large-cap stocks in general. In the in the second half of the year, the economy was opening up, things were getting better. Uh, there were some concerns about inflation doing well. Um, but it is interesting because earlier in the year, we actually saw small cap stocks doing really well. Um, and we still saw it being a good year for small cap value. Uh, but I think it really, not going back to the last year, if you look over the last four or five years, it's really been a giant tech heavy market. And those have done really, really well. Um, and so even when you look at the performance, performance of the S&P 500 over the last three or four years, um, you really want to look at your Googles, your Microsofts, your Facebooks, how well they've done, and that's been a big driver of large cap stocks. And as we talk about, you know, the strongest, uh, you know, just to talk, touch on the weak, oh, the weaker um, 
asset classes. In your article, you found uh, that intermediate term bonds and short term bonds, as well as emerging uh, market equities were down last year. What was the cause of this overall de decrease? Yeah, there's two things. So when you look at the bond side, it's been a combination of interest rates being really low. Uh, investors are favoring stocks over bonds just because the interest rates have been so low. Um, and then obviously over the last year, we've been seeing inflation pick up. So now you have this combination of low yields and investors are really worried about bond prices because bond prices are inversely related uh, with interest rates. So if you have higher inflation, uh, there's concern about the Fed raising interest rates, rising interest rates devalue the price of bonds because if the bond you bought's yielding say 1% and the bonds being issued today are yielding 2%, um, obviously you want the bond that's issuing 2% and to accept the bond that's worth pay paying an interest rate of 1%, you're gonna go to that seller and say, I'll buy that bond, but you've gotta give me a better price. You gotta discount that bond. Uh, with emerging markets, it was a combination, obviously, the pandemics was causing concerns. Um, you certainly had some political issues in certain countries, such as Brazil, uh, but you also saw the dollar being really strong and the U.S. economy doing really strong. Um, and so that pulled some money that might have been looking at emerging markets into the United States as well. That makes sense. And um, as a whole, you mentioned, you know, we're looking at the uh, asset class heat map. You mentioned the overall lack of a consistent leader. Uh, can you give us a little bit more background and detail on why that you think that was? Yeah. And so every year, depending on economic conditions, depending on interest rates, depending on the macroeconomic environment, you're going to see different asset classes uh, perform differently. And this is why we always tell people don't just focus on one year's returns. Uh, because things can change and different asset classes are going to be in different favor. So uh, if you look here at 2021, short-term bond funds, that asset class category was among the worst performers. Uh, in 2018, a difficult year for the stock market, that was actually the best performer. Um, and so that's what I'm saying. When you look at this, realize that your leadership's always going to change, but we know over the long-term, even though there's shorter-term volatility, short-term swings, um, over the long term, when you look at your asset allocation, that should be more static than what you see in the year-to-year -year changes and the performance of different asset class categories. Because we know over the long term, being allocated to stocks, particularly being allocated to small cap value stocks, is going to give you a very big return. Uh, but over the short term, you're going to set that swing. So I think it's very helpful when people look at this to understand that, but to also set their expectations accordingly. So if an asset class they're allocated to or an asset class category, uh, they hold investment in, hold investments in underperforms for a given year, understand that may just be one bad year and not a sign that you should necessarily bail on that asset class category. Rather, you should understand why you're holding it and what role is it playing in your portfolio? Is it a driver of, of growth or is it meant to maybe be a counterbalance against more volatile asset classes? To build off that, um, you know, of looking at um, just the 12, you know, back or looking at the past 12 months, it could be an issue. And that's why you have to look at the whole picture. Um, does looking at past heat maps from previous years, such as historical data, uh, help or hurt you in the long run? Yeah, I believe it helps. I'm a big believer uh, that the more you understand market history, the more you know about market history, the less likely you are to react because I think market history helps you set your expectations for what is normal and what is abnormal. And so I think when you look at these heat maps, 
and you see the turnover in asset class categories and you see the change in leadership and you also see the change in which asset class categories are not doing well, which are laggards, I think it helps you set the expectations and really helps you understand that I might be, I might be allocated to this asset class category and I might have a big investment in it, but I know every year it's not necessarily going to be the top performer. And there are going to be some years where it's performance stinks, but I'm comfortable with that because I realize that's just a normal part of investing. And I realize the long-term advantages of staying allocated to that asset class category are going to benefit me. That makes sense. And um, as far as the Prism Academy, you know, we've uh, we have a section on R, uh, recognizing your risk tolerance and allocation, that is focused on how to calculate your risk tolerance and how to use that knowledge to better allocate your portfolio and reduce risk in general. Um, so, how does that tie into what we've learned here today about asset class heat maps and diversification as a whole? Yeah, I really think it comes down to your ability to withstand risk and our risk tolerance. Uh, in that step, we actually have a worksheet to help you gauging your understanding of risk and what you can withstand. Um, and I think when you look at heat maps, it really kind of gets to that point of, can you stick with the asset allocation? Uh, and I think when people look at asset allocations, a lot of times they're, they're focused on return. How can I get the highest return? And you know, obviously if you have long-term goals, getting a high return is very important, uh, but investors are often better off following an allocation that perhaps produces a little less return uh, but has a little less volatility if that's what's required for them to stick with the allocation over the long term. So it's understanding you have this turnover, understanding you have this volatility. If you follow this, asset, this certain asset allocation and perhaps it's heavily allocated to stocks, perhaps you're looking at the aggressive allocation. But if you see that, okay, there's going to be periods where stocks are really going to stink up the place. The returns are going to be awful. Uh, there's going to be a correction. It's going to be a bear market. You know, understanding what's your ability to stick with it? Because an, a very heavy stock allocation or basically maybe uh, almost full allocation allocating to fully stocks, that'll give you the highest returns, but it'll also have the highest volatility. So look at this heat map and understand, oh, there is going to be this rotation. There's going to be periods where stocks underperform. Um, and maybe perhaps gives you a gut check to ask yourself, can I withstand this volatility? And am, am I willing to endure this volatility? If the answer is yes, then it is the right allocation for you. But the answer is no. Then again, maybe you want to revisit your answers to the risk questionnaire and whether or not you're actually able uh, to withstand this level of risk. And if you're not, that's okay. Just understand that you need to perhaps go with a slightly more conservative approach to asset allocation. Um, and understand the ramifications might mean that you might need to save more for your goal. Uh, perhaps you need to push back further the data reaching your goal because you have to accept a lower return. But the payoff is because you're able to stick with that asset allocation, you're still going to have higher odds of reaching that goal uh, when it finally arrives. That's excellent. And I mean, those are great resources for investors to use, you know, both the asset class heat map as well as the risk assessment worksheets in the Prism Academy. Um, and then I just want to ask, is there anything else you wanted to highlight about the asset class heat map or your article or just reducing risk um, biodiversifying as a whole? Yeah. Oh, I think there's two things there. One, uh, realize that risk and return are separate. And the higher the return you want, the more risk in terms of volatility you're going to have to withstand. So there's always that trade-off. Uh, but you 
but you're also being compensated for volatility through higher returns. So there is that max of financially and psychologically, can you withstand the volatility? If you can, you are going to be compensated for putting up with it over the long term. Um, I think the asset keep maps are always really interesting in terms of looking at. Uh, but again, I think going back to this idea is that it helps, I think it helps you set your expectations um, in terms of what can actually happen in terms of turnover and realizing that just because an asset class category has done really well this year doesn't mean it's going to continue doing well next year and you can't have uh, this volatility into it. That's really good to remember, yeah. And um, thank you so much, Charles, for sitting down with me and chat with me today about your article. I, I learned so much about risk, as, uh, risk assessment, tolerance, diversification, and the asset cl class heat maps as well. Great. Thanks, Jenna. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, just for our members, I'd like to highlight that um, they could check out the asset class heat map for themselves in the AAII journal. Um, you can visit aaii.com slash journal. And if you want to participate, we've mentioned the Prism Academy, uh, talking about risk, allocation, um, and step two. Uh, you can visit that uh, at aaii.com slash learn and plan to get started. So uh, yeah, thank you so much, Charles, and I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Thanks, Jenna. Hey, Matt. Uh, thanks so much hey, for making time to talk with me today about your article in the February AAII Journal, uh, which is called Understanding Risk-Adjusted Returns via the Sharpe Ratio. Hey, Jenna. Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, no problem. And I appreciate you making the time to chat with me. I, I have a few questions. Uh, and uh, my first question is kind of just getting a, a brief understanding of what risk-adjusted returns uh, are. Yeah, so um, risk-adjusted return is uh, it's a calculation um, of the profit or potential profit uh, from an investment. Um, and it takes into account the degree of risk um, that must be accepted um, by the investor to, to get that return. Um, Usually this risk is measured in comparison to a risk-free um, investment, so typically U.S. treasuries. Um, there's different methods to calculate risk-adjusted risk return. Um, you know, depending on the method used, um, the, the calculation is either expressed as a, a number or a rating. Um, you know, they could be applied to individual stocks, investment funds, uh, and entire portfolios. Um, and they, they play off the natural relationship between, or it, it, it looks at the natural relationship between risk and return. Um, investors seek the lowest level of risk uh, for a given level of return. Um, alternatively, they won't take on additional risk uh, unless there's a higher chance of greater return. Um, you know, we do this every day with small decisions uh, that have some basis of speculation. So this relationship of risk and return is essential in finance. Um, and it, it argues, right, that riskier investments should compensate investors with higher returns um, and safer investments should not experience um, much price fluctuation. That makes sense. And um, similarly, uh, I wanted to get a little understanding of uh, what the trainer ratio and the sharp ratio, just because you mentioned both in your article as well. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the Sharp ratio um, comes from William Sharp uh, in the, the mid '60s, um, and when you're when you're using the Sharp ratio, uh, the higher the value, uh, the more excess return investors might expect um, to receive for the volatility that they're being exposed to for holding that asset. Um, the specifically the Sharp ratio subtracts. Uh, 
the risk-free rate of return from the average rate of return um, of the investment uh, you are specifically evaluating, whether that's a stock or a portfolio. Um, then that difference is divided by the standard deviation um, of your chosen investment's rate of return. Um, the, the, the standard deviation is, is, uh, is its, its deviation from the mean of its return. Um, it's common, commonly used to measure volatility um, and thus you know, riskiness. Um, you know, for instance, if an, if an investment deviates only you know, 3% from its mean on average, um, it's just it's judged as less risky than investment with a 20% average deviation. Um, and as far as the trainer ratio, uh, both the sharp and the trainer ratio use um, or measure um, how the investment uh, vehicle you're, you're looking at compensates you for, for given risk. Um, the main difference is that the, the sharp ratio uses the standard deviation as I was talking about, and the trainer ratio uses um, beta. Uh, beta is another measure of volatility, but it's specifically looking at um, the individual um, either stock or portfolio um, compared to uh, the market as a whole, um, not just looking at its um, standard deviation of, of returns. And now that we have a little bit of background of um, what the ratios mean and what risk adjusted returns are, um, how should investors use uh, the, the Sharpe ratio to analyze a company before they invest? Yeah, so Sharpe ratios above one um, are generally considered good. Um, you know, this suggests that the portfolio is offering, you know, is offering excess returns uh, compared to its, its volatility. Um, you know, you know, a portfolio with a Sharpe ratio of one might be considered inadequate, though. Um, if its competitors and its peer group have an average sharp ratio above one. Um, but generally speaking, the greater portfolio sharp ratio, uh, the better its risk adjusted performance. Um, if the analysis results in a negative sharp ratio, uh, it either means that the, the risk free rate of return is greater than the portfolio's return, or the portfolio's return is expected to be negative. Um, and in either case, uh, a negative sharp ratio doesn't convey, convey any, um, any useful meaning there. Um, so a, a high sharp ratio is, is good when compared to similar portfolios or, or funds with lower returns. Um, the sharp ratio also can explain whether a portfolio's excess returns are due to smart investment decisions or if they're the results of, of, of too much risk. Um, you know, sometimes a portfolio, uh, specifically looking at a portfolio or a fund, um, they can enjoy higher risk for a, a period of time compared to peers. Um, but that that additional return um, is only uh, only worthwhile if you're being compensated for it. Um, so overall, the Sharpe ratio was originally developed as a forecasting tool. Um, but it can also be used to look at historical uh, adjusted rates of risk adjusted rates of return. Um, so you could look at it both from a, 
uh, forward and backward perspective there. That makes sense. And so, so it sounds like that uh, the sharp ratio as well as risk adjusted returns, and you, it's a good comparison tool if you're like looking at different securities, but you have to say um, within the industry to make it to get a, a pretty good accurate score. Is that is that kind of correct? Yeah. Um, so the, the the some of the weaknesses there, yeah, are its relative value, um, the total risk, and its its uh, sharp ratios uh, reliance on a normal distribution. Um, so yeah, it as far as um, this also gets into level of adequate compensation compensation. Um, as a comparison tool, it doesn't, it's extremely weak when you're looking uh, outside of uh, a similar industry, the same industry, or for a fund, the same category. Makes sense. And so you have to be careful as an investor. Um, and as far as in your article, you do mention that many investors, um, and, you know, neglect to take the time to look at an investment's risk or uh, validity before they purchase. Uh, why do you think that is? Um, yeah, in my, there, the image in my head, uh, what I'm, I'm thinking of is um, what uh, AAII's founder, Jim Clinton, called a, a level one investor. Um, so that's someone that's, you know, doesn't have an organized investing strategy. So they're, they're driven by impulse um, and emotion. Um, and you're, you're also being pushed by, by random observations and advice uh, and you don't, you're in a constant state of flux. Um, generally, I think the, uh, the good majority of individual investors um, at times fall into this category. Uh, you know, it's a spectrum. So at different times, I've been a level one investor. Um, but yeah, it's that concept of uh, the level one investor that I'm, I'm thinking of there. I can definitely see that. And um... As far as, um, you know, as uh, you also mentioned that, you know, investors uh, use or should use risk-adjusted risk returns to see if they are being ad adequately compensated for the risk that they're assuming uh, when they purchase a security. Uh, can you just give me a little bit more background on this? Um, kind of like, what do you mean by compensation? And then what does ag adequate compensation even look like? Yeah, so compensation right there is just literally returns. Um, and then as far as adequacy, it's, uh, as I started before, it's, um, it's adequate based on peers. Um, from a value standpoint, you know, you should be getting better performance from an investment that carries more risk. Um, you know, as we said at the beginning, um, there's a, a basic financial kind of behavioral tenet, um, you know, that investors seek the lowest level of risk for a given level of return. And, you know, they won't take additional risk unless there's um, a higher chance of return. Um, so when you're that, that's really what we're looking at for 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 adequacy, uh, when it comes to that. Excellent. Yeah. And um, as far as the AI website, um, and for our members, um, are there any specific tools or resources or resources that investors can uh, analyze or look at um, in regards to risk-adjusted returns? Or is there any other like tool that can compare securities? Uh, so that they can know if they're adequately compensated uh, for risk? Um, yeah, we have, a, as I mentioned, you could use the Sharpe ratio for uh, different types. Um, use it for stocks, 
uh, or funds. Um, specific, we don't have the, the sharp ratio specifically, but we do have risk adjusted return uh, calculations and, and tables available for, for funds and for our stock screens. Um, you can find the, and for the funds that's specifically the equity-based funds, um, you can find that on either the funds, the mutual funds page or the ETFs page, uh, each respectively. Um, and then for stock screens, you'll find uh, risk adjusted return calculations on the risk and return uh, table. Oh, excellent. And um, as far as your article, is there anything else you'd like to highlight um, that I didn't previously mention before? Yeah, uh, just if you, I, I've said uh, orally the, the formula for the sharp ratio, but if you're looking for it written, you know, as a visual reference uh, that is provided in the article. Excellent. So a really good resource for, you know, members who want to, you know, delve into the ratios a little bit and, and see if they're, uh, yeah, if, if they're compensated for their risk <laughs> that they're taking. Right. So it makes sense. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for sitting down with me. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I, I, I learned a lot about sharp ratios and trainer ratios and risk-adjusted returns, and I hope our members did too. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Jenna. Yeah, and I just do, do want to mention that um, for our members, if they'd like to check out the latest issue of the AAII Journal, uh, which is the February 2022 issue, uh, they can visit aaii.com journal. And I'd like to thank you again, and I hope you have a, rest, a wonderful rest of your day. Yeah, thank you. Me too. Thanks. And now for a message from our friends at Discover Bank. We know as individuals interested in building investor wealth, you never want your money to be idle. Even small dollar amounts for short amounts of time should be working for you. With that, we're pleased to share information from our partner Discover Bank on deposit accounts that keep your money moving. You can choose from several options to help you meet your short-term or long-term financial goals. The best part? All of the deposit accounts offer preferred member rates. Take a look. With Discover, you can earn over five times more interest than the national savings average with preferred member rates and pay no fees. That's no fees, period. Plus, no minimum balance is required. You can access your AAII member savings account with Discover Bank from your smartphone or tablet, so it's easy to keep your money moving in the right direction. Open an AAII online savings account to start saving for the future today. Visit aaii.discoverbank.com to learn more. We hope you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. I want to thank Charles Rothblatt and Matt Bajkowski for making time to chat with me today. Learning how to diversify your portfolio to reduce risk, as well as ensuring you are compensated for taking on additional risk, are two key factors that will help you become an effective individual investor. And as always, please remember to click the subscribe button if you'd like to be alerted of future II shows. You can always catch a replay of tonight's event on our YouTube channel and make sure to register for upcoming AAII events and webinars by visiting aaii.com webinars. And if you're an investor on the go and want to catch the II show while driving or going on your daily walk, you can now follow us on Spotify. Also, you can view both Charles and Matt's articles in the February issue of the AAII Journal by visiting aaii.com journal. And with that, we wish all of you viewing good health, good fortune, and a great evening. Thank you all. Happy investing.